You're listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. On the show today, we had New Matilda's Ben Altham join us to talk about federal politics. Then we had street and stencil artist Luke Cornish, who's also known as Elk, and he was in the studio to talk about his latest works called Zero to the Left, and they're on display at Metro Gallery in Armidale and are inspired by his recent trips to Syria and meeting the Syrian civilians currently caught up in that conflict. Then we had a chat with philosopher Clive Hamilton, who's a professor of public ethics at Charles Sturt University in Canberra, and he talked about his new book, Defiant Earth, The Fate of Humans in the Anthropocene, which really details how human activity has created a new and dangerous epoch. Then finally, we had a chat with curator Leslie Harding from the Heidi Museum of Modern Art, and she joined me to talk about their latest exhibition, Call of the Avant-Garde, Constructivism and Australian Art, and that runs until the 8th of October. We're talking about Australian politics with Mr. Ben Eltham from New Matilda. Hi, Ben. Good morning, Amy. How are you? Morning. Good, good. How are you? I'm okay, thanks. I'm okay. Yeah, that's good, good. Now... Well, there's a lot of things happening, but uh, let's go with the obvious one at the moment, which is uh, Malcolm Turnbull and the many images that are proliferating over Twitter with him and many the world leaders, uh, particularly we've seen him with Emmanuel Macron uh, in France and now we've seen him with Theresa May, the UK Prime Minister. He's had a chat with her about terrorism and also about a potential uh, free trade agreement uh, with, with Britain obviously leaving the EU. Um, what is Malcolm doing overseas at the moment, Ben? Oh, just normal prime ministerial stuff, really, Amy. He's just hanging out, uh, doing the G20 thing. Of course, ironically, it was Kevin Rudd who fought so hard to get Australia into the G20. But now that we're in, you know, we get to go to these sort of world events and swan around on the world stage. And I think that would be very amenable to Malcolm Turnbull. No doubt he's enjoying the international climate a little bit more than he would be enjoying chilly Canberra at this time of the year. It does come across that he's uh, he's in his element at the moment and enjoying this kind of the picture opportunities. But also, uh, in particular... <coughs> Even though he's out there doing things that are relating to international affairs and trade, um, you know, issues which are often not discussed in domestic situations, he's still being, uh, I guess, hamstrung by his domestic uh, issues with Tony Abbott at the moment. And in the speech that he's uh, given overnight in in a forum of, um, I guess, British conservatives, he has come out to say, uh, this is the history of the Liberal Party, reasserting the Menzies uh, history and ideology that the Liberal Party is a, um, you know, independent, um, it's all about the individual, it's about um, being progressive, as he says, um, but, and not conservative, that the Liberal Party deliberately veered away from labelling themselves as conservatives uh, in favour of this more middle ground, um, centre-right ideology. And uh, and this has all been reported as, um, you know, a, a direct swipe at Tony Abbott. I mean, why is Malcolm Turnbull bringing all of this up in the UK? 
Well, I, I guess maybe, you know, uh, the thought was that he could do it in the UK and no one much would notice, you know. <laughs> Remember Joe Hockey gave a speech a few years oh, ago yes. where he declared the end of the age of entitlement and hoped no one would notice. Of course, people did notice. Uh, yes. I, I think, you know, perhaps he'd probably planned this speech for months in advance. And in fact, what's happened is that in the intervening months, uh, Tony Abbott has basically launched his campaign, really, you know, and so the Liberal, Liberal Party's in something of a civil war at the moment between the Conservatives and the, the Liberals, the small L Liberals. And so a speech by Turnbull of this nature would inevitably be seen as playing into the internal Liberal Party dynamics. And, you know, Turnbull's right on some of the history there. I mean, there's no doubt that when Menzies set up the modern Liberal Party during the Second World War, it was intended to be a substantially small L Liberal kind of party. And, you know, you go back to Menzies' speeches in that period, the, the famous Forgotten People's speeches on the radio that he gave, um, they were all about the middle class. They were all about um, ordinary people wanting to buy a home, get ahead, live their lives. You know, he was very much trying to contrast uh, the Liberal Party against the Labor Party, which he saw at the time as the party of organised labour and unions. And But he was also very careful to distinguish the new Liberal Party that he was setting up from the parties of big business, from um, big businessmen and people who are very rich, people, well, you might say people like Malcolm Turnbull. Mm. So, I mean, I think there's some very interesting history of the Liberal Party there. There's no doubt that under John Howard, the Liberals moved right and they moved into a much more conservative kind of position. And of course, that reached its apogee with Tony Abbott, the most conservative Prime Minister, really, um, of the post-war era. Um, And voters rejected Tony Abbott's vision. And and I think a lot of the internal civil war we're seeing in the Liberal Party at the moment is the party trying to come to terms with that, the fact that the conservative wing of the party no longer has power, uh, no longer has control of the factional balance, but also that voters have rejected really a lot of those philosophies that the conservatives stand for. Yes. And I mean, what does the Liberal Party now stand for? Because you mentioned there the middle class has having been a key concern constituency, you would often think that perhaps they haven't really been representing middle class interests, let alone working class interests, when you look at their uh, policy platforms. Well, this is, I think, one real big contrast to the Howard years. You know, Howard was very big on strengthening the middle class, on giving the middle class tax handouts, and he had the money to do it back in those days. The current in, the current incarnation of the Liberal Party is, I, I think, much less interested in the middle class as a class in itself. And I think they've maybe bought some of their own rhetoric that Australia doesn't have any classes anymore and therefore we don't have to worry about this class kind of division thing. Um, And as a result, many of the policies of the modern Liberal Party are quite anti the middle class. You know, I would put home ownership in there as maybe the, the number one example where the middle class in Sydney and Melbourne now can't really afford to buy a home. And that's a, you know... A very much a big problem considering how important home ownership has been to the Australian middle class. And inequality is getting wider. There's all sorts of things going on in our economy that the government hasn't really addressed uh, that are making it harder for people to hold their own, let alone get ahead. So, yeah, I think, you know, this is a, a really interesting time to talk about the middle class. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether Turnbull can continue this tack to the centre that we talked about last week, where he's trying to turn the government into a slightly more moderate, more centrist leaning kind of government, you know, to distinguish it, of course, from the Abbott years. Now, 
many would say that his chance to do that has passed. It was probably back in September 2015. And, you know, it's funny that he's now hanging out with Emmanuel Macron. You know, he must be very jealous of Macron, I think. You know, the guy who's basically created his own party and his own image and now has pretty much complete control of French politics. You know, how different that is from the situation Turnbull finds himself in. Indeed, and also a great deal of political capital which uh, our Prime Minister has squandered since, really. He really has, you know, and if you look at where the opinion polls are at, it's hard to see what Turnbull can do now. It's it's a concern, I think, for the Liberal HQ. You know, it seems as though voters have switched off. And indeed, um, Scott Morrison even warned about that in a recent speech, that the voters simply aren't listening to the government anymore. And of course, that's the most dangerous thing for any government because it's a lot of voters have already made up their mind. Yes. And if we look at the, the narrowing between uh, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and the opposition leader Bill Shorten in the preferred Prime Minister poll, which has been uh, widely publicised over the last day or so, that was at 13 percentage points in the difference and now it's at eight. And that is um, one of the key concerns because, as we know, Bill Shorten hasn't necessarily been that much of a realistic contender. People haven't often seen him as prime ministerial material, so to speak, but he's kind of a bit of a dark horse right now, Ben. Uh, he hasn't set the world on fire in terms of his personal popularity. <laughs> I think that's fair to say, no. Yes. I never take too much attention, you know, pay too much attention to preferred Prime Minister because in the end what really matters, I think, are the, the headline figures on which party you, you want to vote for. But there's no doubt that um, Shorten is starting to match up better vis-a-vis Turnbull. And I think that's interesting. You know, one theory for that is simply that term, that Shorten has been on holidays (laughs) (laughs) so that he hasn't been out there in the media. Voters have forgotten that they don't like him. (laughs) So it's evened up a bit. Yeah, the zingers are are not out there at the moment. Um, Now, let's talk about some policy points here. There's a couple of things that have happened. One that's really quite disturbing is um, the Medicare issue. Uh, There's now been an announced a review into the security system around Medicare because apparently um, a certain person has been exploiting the weaknesses in the security of Medicare and actually selling the details of individuals, Medicare um, numbers, etc., upon request on the darknet. I mean, this is one more... um, issue that is around the Department of Human Services. We've seen the robo-debt issue arise as well. I mean, is this a bit of a theme, Ben? Yeah, another fantastic scoop from The Guardian's Paul Farrell there. He's able to uncover this you know, um, nefarious web of uh, dark internet activity. Um, And, you know, it's probably not surprising that criminals are exploiting Medicare's reasonably rickety um, security systems. Um, And the Medicare card is, of course, pretty useful for gaining things like 100 points of ID. So you can see why criminals would be interested in it. I mean, I think this just points to the government's woeful record on IT and privacy in general. Mm-hmm. This government doesn't get it when it comes to issues of information technology. It's got a terrible record. Look at the NBN, mm, the look census. at Centrelink, look at the census, you know. Um, and this is probably just a, another example. And, of course, who is the who is the relevant minister? Hmm. It's Alan Tudge, the human services minister. He of robo-debt fame. Yes. So, um, you know, I won't be holding my breath to see what the outcome of this inquiry is. I think we can assume that it will clear the government <laughs> and the department and the minister. 
Yes. And there's also been a development uh, in the Centrelink area as well. We've seen Accenture Australia um, granted a $26 million contract by the government to overhaul their payment system, uh, which is obviously has issues. I mean, this is another area where the public service has kind of been relegated to nowhere, the desert. Yeah, that's right. Well, after years of cuts and years of cutbacks and years of losing roles, you know, redundancies within the public service, the Australian public service no longer has the skills to do this kind of work. And so it's being farmed out, you know, a kind of privatisation by stealth, which is very common in, you know, the what the coalition's been doing over the last four years. Uh, this $26 million is only the beginning of roughly a billion dollars that the government plans to spend on this uh, payments update. Um, Accenture obviously has the pole position now. They seem to now be the preferred supplier for this. Of course, you know, um, who is Accenture? It's one of the big four accounting firms. These are the guys who are up to their neck in the um, kind of uh, tax avoidance problems of big business. The, um, the, the big four accounting firms are the guys who minimise the tax for the big companies. So, I mean, they're hardly the most ethical guys. But, you know, it's not surprising that these big firms are able to get these big government contracts because the government can't do it itself anymore. That it can't. And uh, one thing, though, that the government or one of the governments within Australia, the South Australian government is doing. Uh, We've seen Jay Weatherill um, having pictures taken with Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, um, because they are installing the world's largest lithium-ion battery in South Australia. Now, this is a government that's bothering to take charge and lead in an issue. Um, not to say that Jay Weatherill is perfect, but uh, certainly it's a bit refreshing to see some form of development and innovation, something that Malcolm Turnbull has been spruiking since he came in as Prime Minister. Yeah, it's ironic, isn't it? You know, a 14-year-old Labor government ends up being the government that grasps the bull by its horns and actually tries to reform Australia's rickety energy system. And, of course, they were forced there by events, Mm. by the fact of the blackouts that happened and the problems of South Australia's grid, most of which, of course, are not really South Australia's makings. But, yeah, the South Australian government teamed up with Elon Musk now and a wind farm company, Neon, I believe they're called, um, to build the world's largest battery. So the wind farms will charge it up and then, you know, then it'll release power to the grid as and when it's needed. Um, And I think it's a fantastic achievement for South Australia and and it shows, you know, what the new technology is capable of. And I think it's just another nail in the coffin of fossil fuels, really. Mm, And hopefully will be an excellent case study, and we have many, um, as to what the federal government could do if they actually decided to do something on renewable energy that's meaningful? Well, yeah, I mean, this is a good example of just government tendering, you know. So the government has just had a reverse auction, basically, which has been tremendously successful in the Australian Capital Territory. They've done reverse auctions for all sorts of solar. Here we've had a successful one for the battery. You know, Queensland's going ahead with a lot of solar up in North Queensland. So the state's really taking the lead on energy policy, and that's because the federal government is internally divided on energy. They can't even make up their mind about the Finkel review. Remember (laughs) we talked about the Finkel review a month ago? Did the modelling come out behind that? It did come out. Eventually. Yeah, we found it to be as flawed as we suspected. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Um, And, yeah, I mean, just on that, the modelling of the Finkel review didn't commit us – it wasn't – 
It wasn't consistent with Australia's Paris climate commitments, which, by the way, 19 of the G20 leaders just recommitted to, including Malcolm Turnbull in Hamburg. So Paris agreements are still going ahead, even with Donald Trump pulling the US out. Um, But the government's energy policy plan that they commissioned didn't actually meet those Paris agreements. And of course, whatever that means, we don't know because the government still doesn't come up with a response to Finkel. So they don't even know what they're doing in this area. And of course, the reason is they're internally divided. There's a war going on within the Liberal Party and it's spilling over into all of these areas like marriage equality, like energy policy, so on and so forth. Mm, And of course, the fossil fuel lobby is seeing uh, the Finkel review as the best possible outcome coal could get in the circumstances, that's probably not a good sign for the environment, is it? It tells you all you need to know, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> and now let's uh, just move to same-sex marriage, which you've just mentioned there, because that's going to be bubbling along for the next month or so as uh, Senator Dean Smith from Western Australia, he's a Liberal senator who's also um, gay, and he is putting together a private member's bill to actually bring forth the issue of same-sex marriage again um, to hopefully have a conscience vote. I doubt that's going to happen, but he does also want to bring up the debate within the Liberal Party caucus room to discuss whether the plebiscite should still be the Liberal Party's policy. What do you think is going to happen there, Ben? Well, probably nothing. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I guess, you know, look, we, we all know why we got to here, you know, the, the Liberal Party insisted on having a plebiscite for this issue. Um, the plebiscite lost the support of the gay community. The gay and lesbian community decided that they didn't want a plebiscite in the current environment of Australian politics with the kind of campaigning that was likely to happen on, you know, around a vote like that. Now, whether you agree with that decision or not, that was the decision that ended up coming to be made by the people with most at stake. And that was the reason why many of the smaller parties, the Greens, Labor, the Xenophon Party, blocked the plebiscite in the parliament, okay? So that's where we're at at the moment. It's still the official policy of the government is to have a plebiscite, but no plebiscite is happening anytime soon. No, but it's sad that it keeps getting dangled in front of us, this whole progressive reform that we may actually solve the the problem, the ongoing issue of same-sex marriage, because it just seems like we need to get it over with. Germany just, uh, just did it. I mean, it just seems quite dumbfounding that Australia can't get its act together. Yeah, well, I mean, we don't need a plebiscite, quite obviously. We don't need one. I mean, the government can just vote in the parliament about marriage at any time, as they did back in 2004 Mm -hmm. to give us the current bill. So, you know, it's really being blocked by the hardliners in the Liberal Party and also to a little bit, uh, to some degree, the hardliners in the Labor Party as well. But mainly because they are the government after all, the Liberal Party, they are the ones responsible. And, of course, it's a talismanic issue for the Liberal Party conservatives, you know, to allow marriage to now be opened up to non-heterosexual people would be a line in the sand for many you know, religious, conservative, Liberal Party MPs. And so it's a, it's a huge issue within the Liberal Party. It is, and I'm sure it will still be an issue and probably uh, signal more about the divisions within the Liberal Party and the, the Abbott-Turnbull uh, leadership contest 
instead of the Absolutely. actual policy Absolutely. It'll itself. totally become part of the Abbott-Turnbull problem. And this is mm. why Turnbull is trying to sort of stomp it down, you know, because it's just another uh, it's another little spot fire in the, in the conflagration that is his own party base. Indeed. Well, watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we will. We As will be usual. watching. Yeah. And thanks, Ben, for coming in and having a chat with us. Yeah, thanks, Amy. It's great to have you. That was Ben Eltham. He's the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda and he's a regular guest who comes in to chat about federal politics. Always a joy to have Ben in with us. Uh, So as I promised, we have with us in the studio Luke Cornish, who is also known as Elk and he's a stencil artist um, based in Sydney, Western Sydney, and joins us now. So thanks, Luke, for for coming in. Thanks for having me on, Amy. It's wonderful to have you. Um, I was really intrigued uh, when I saw this um, exhibition and the concept around it because you are dealing with or creating a body of work out of a lived or personal experience with people from Syria in Syria experiencing the Syrian conflict. Um, And it's called Zero to the Left. It's at the Metro Gallery in Armidale. So first I just wanted to, um, I guess, understand what led you to go to Syria in the first place because I understand you've been back as well since the first trip. I've been twice in the last 12 months. I'm I'm heading back in October as well. So I went 12 months ago with a group of boxers from Sydney they do uh, like exhibition bouts with the Syrian Olympic team and workshops with kids. And so I was going to be boxing with them originally, but right. I broke my rib a couple of days before we were supposed oh. to leave, which probably worked out for the best because I'm not a boxer. No, I'm a terrible, <laughs> terrible boxer. But I stepped into film for them, yeah. and it was it was just a life changing experience. Just right. Well, it clearly has been given you're also going back again um, later this year. Yeah, I just I fell in love with the place. Yeah. The people are so amazing. The Just the hospitality of the Middle East, it's just incredible. And it has a really deep uh, history which, you know, has been partially destroyed um, in areas. Certainly Palmyra has been well known to have been destroyed, um, not completely, but, you know, that yeah. was a significant site which has now been damaged. Yeah. Um, well, technically, it already was ruins. Yeah, so. it was. Yeah. It was. Um, they were trying to protect the ruins. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, obviously, Daesh or ISIS had other ideas. Yeah. Um, with Syria and the people that you met there, who I mean, there's one area particularly. Um, I think it's East Aleppo, um, yeah. which has you know been damaged a, a significant deal because of the conflict that's over there between the government and civilians. I mean, what were some of the things you witnessed in terms of the people who were there, um, you know, trying to survive in a war zone? Basically, just that, just people trying to survive in a war zone, like. There's nothing left of East Aleppo. It's just all gone. But there's still people living amongst the, amongst the rubble there. And so how are they managing? Because obviously you would need to similarly manage and, you know, survive in that with them. Um, I guess people just have this strong ability to adapt to their situation and they're just getting by as, as best they can. But still, 
with so much positivity and hope. Mm. Yeah. And that's what comes through um, in your artworks. Um, and particularly there's um, a really interesting piece or a couple of pieces that you've done uh, with Dora the Explorer. Um, and I also want to, I guess, draw a distinction between um, the stencils, which look like you've done them in Syria on site and then some which you've come back and done on aluminium and canvas? Yeah. So I did some street art in Syria, which I've taken photos of and turned into prints. Yeah. And I've also created artworks from the images that I took there. Mm. And so in these particular... um, Artworks that you've done with the children in Syria, some of them are around that Dora Explorer um, image, but there are also others with um, young boys there on the streets. Um, What, you know, when you were meeting these children who, um, you know, they seem like they're very resilient, positive um, kids, what was that experience like, you know, doing art with them? There's a quote from Richard Flanagan because um, he's spent time in Jordan and Lebanon working with refugees and he says, these people aren't like us, they are us. And and you really get a sense of that when you're over there. Because the, the only sort of exposure it had to the situation was on the news and mm. then you get there and you're like, wow, these, it's, they're us. So... Sorry, what's the question? Well, they're obviously, um, they're us, but dealing with a situation that we don't have to deal with um, and hence why, you know, if they've built resilience, presumably much more than a lot of people in Western countries that are, you know, not dealing with a civil war. Um, And so I guess I'm just wondering when you were doing art with these kids, um, you know, what was their approach? Were they, you know, really... It was was it a collaboration between you or? How I wasn't did the so much a collaboration. Forward? It was just, it wasn't even teaching them skills really. It was more about just having fun yeah. and just taking them out of their environment for a couple of hours, just you know, a distraction from their traumatic mm. stress symptoms. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, and there's some works that you've done uh, since you've come back, as you said, based on the photographs you've taken there and the footage that you have. Yeah. Um, and and it particularly uses an interesting technique, which we were just talking about off air. Um, and uh, a, an example of it, it says here, aerosol and sublimation on aluminium. Not many um, non-artists would know what that means. So I'm just really... Um, interested in that process and technique that you're using um, throughout a lot of the pieces in this exhibition right. and what you think the benefits of it are, like what you, why you've used that particular technique. Well, I've, I've been experimenting with sublimation prints, which is a, a method of printing onto aluminium. It's kind of like a transfer, so it's pressed and heated to these high temperatures and the ink permeates the metal, so it actually becomes one whole substrata instead of say a digital print where it's sitting on top and the idea for experimenting this is to find a more archival way of printing I'm I'm hoping I don't know it's arrogant to say but I want this work to be around in a few hundred years Mm. I don't want it to fade away in the next six months yeah which Mm. is kind of the whole idea of transitioning from street art to contemporary gallery art it's street art such an ephemeral practice it is, it yeah. is. And, I mean, you do, you've done both in this exhibition in the sense that you've obviously um, created street art in a place where it's not going to be around for very long at all. 
Well, that, the idea for painting Dora the Explorer over there, I t- A, I like the irony of painting Dora the Explorer yeah. in Aleppo, but it's also, it's this cartoon character that can travels the world visiting children and taking her to a place where <clears throat> under normal circumstances she wouldn't visit and giving this gift to the children that, that need her the most because mm. they all know who Dora is. Yes, and yeah. it was requested. It was actually requested as as is written in the catalogue by um, a young girl who wanted a Dora the Explorer. Yeah, Dora was her favourite character. <laughs> I hear it's one of the most popular children's characters, but it's also very symbolic. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know that much about kids' cartoon characters, but I know a lot about Dora now. So Yeah, yeah, yeah Dora's famous apparently. <laughs> um, so this exhibition, Zero to the Left, it's not just... Um, focusing on on those children but also other adult Syrians and there's a particularly um, poignant image of a man um, sitting in front of a Syrian flag which is kind of painted on this roll-down door. Pretty much every roller door in government-held parts of Syria have a Syrian flag on it. Yeah. Yeah. And is that is that marking territory? Advertising, I guess. Yeah, yeah. propaganda. Yeah, propaganda. Yeah, because yeah. that one is is titled Zero to the Right. Well, Zero to the Left, the name of the exhibition comes from the Arabic term Sifa al-Nasr. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, which indicates it's used as an insult in Arabic. You say someone's zero to the left, meaning any zero to the left of a decimal point has no value. So that, that person has no value. And... I'm not saying these people have no value, but I'm saying to the people that are dropping bombs mm. from, you know, the sky, from the sea, from the land, whatever, that they have no value. But what I'm trying, hopefully trying to do with this exhibition is say that they do have value. And the play on words with that title, Zero to the Right, was saying that, you know, this is a human being. Yeah, and they absolutely have he value. Was, he's a Palestinian refugee. He's into his 80s. And he was just the nicest guy I've ever met. Like, Because you get a little bit intimidated at the start, like any sort of social interaction. But once you sort of nod and smile and say, you know, Mahaba, he's just warmed and it's just, you know, brings a tear to your eye to think of the struggle this man's had having to leave his homeland to come to another homeland that he might have to leave eventually anyway. Mm. And with the people that you met, did they talk about um, their family members and whether they had lost any family members? Because that seems like it would be a common issue. Yeah, a lot of them have. Mm. A lot of them have been through things I can't even imagine. But I guess I'm trying to bring a positive news story out Mm. of it and to put a human face on the conflict definitely and it's something which um it's it brings it into stark relief particularly um the piece east aleppo because it, it features this um oldish couple um more mature couple walking along the road and um you could think that it, it has this beautiful blue sky so it looks quite picturesque or utopian but then you look at the buildings and they're quite literally crumbling um, and there's really nothing left that's intact there, um, you know, except for very small, you know, maybe one metre parts of buildings. It, yeah. It's a really stark contrast. Well, I guess with that piece my intention was the blue skies, symbolic of hope, 
and the road ahead from the destruction they've been through because there is a great sense of hope with these people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that's really inspiring to see in this um, exhibition uh, is the resilience and and the fact that they keep going on. I was particularly interested in this, um, the one that's about the barbershop in Old City, Damascus, because we see um, a man in the back of this shop and I can't quite tell um, what he's doing, but I'm really interested about the story behind that one. I took that man's photo when I first visited Syria and made that painting. He's just sort of, you know, due to the, the ongoing conflict and the sanctions that have been imposed on the country, businesses, trade's pretty slow. Mm. So that was sort of touching on that. But I actually met him. I, last time I was there, I walked past and I saw him. So oh, I've got to go and introduce myself. And um, yeah, nice old guy. So I said I'd bring that painting back for him when I go back. Great. In October. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because well, I guess in that image, um, no one is sitting in the barber chair and he's in the back there um, waiting, I guess, for a client. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you can see that. Yeah. I think the words, the, the images speak for themselves. They do. But you do have to look closely at it because there's nuance in those images it's not um you know blunt at all and uh, and there's you know this um young child on a bicycle and as again another syrian flag hanging from the the shop that was two in the morning walking through the old streets of the streets of the old city in damascus and i felt quite safe actually because when i got there I i didn't feel safe at all no but after a few days you know like it's not safe but it's secure yeah. Yeah. And in these areas that you're travelling through, um, you know, how often is there outbreaks of conflict? Well, last time I was there, there was an aerial bombardment in Damascus, which was pretty confronting. Yeah. The mortars getting shot into the old city. But, you know, that's a war zone. That's what happens. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. Um, and Luke, with this exhibition that you've got on um, at Metro Gallery, when you went to Syria, did, did you have, um, I guess, an idea that you wanted to bring together a body of work to show here? Was that something in your mind at the time or did it kind of eventuate afterwards? Oh, it was definitely a plan to make a body of work. It's kind of what I do. I travel somewhere get inspiration and come back and make a body of work from mm. it. But I've actually brought back all the drawings that I did with the children in East Aleppo and I'm exhibiting them alongside my own work because I, I raised some funds to give to the kids but I didn't want to just give them money as charity because that's not conducive to positive change. So I wanted to buy the artworks that they did as an act of empowerment. That's so, fantastic. Yeah, so yeah. they're hanging at the gallery as well. Wonderful. What a great idea. Thank you. <laughs> They're exhibiting artists. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And are you going to show them pictures of, of the gallery with their artworks in it? Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear how that goes. Yeah, it for sounds sure. awesome. Um, and now, like, in terms of going back in October, um, is this, I guess, an ongoing passion or inspiration is the Middle East and particularly Syria? So more that you need to do or want to do. Well, I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm privileged as an artist to be able to do whatever I want to do. Mm. So I really need to decide what kind of artist I want to be. And I guess if I can use that privilege to create some sort of positive change in the world, that's, you know, I think that's my 
that's my calling. But I think at the moment, yeah, I'm sort of leaning towards that conflict. It's, and I, I guess I'll keep going back until it's over. Yeah. 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 But um. Well, yeah. I think a lot of your work has social and political themes through it. Um, and I know that you use stencil stencils as your predominant form, but there, yeah. I mean, there are a whole range of. Um, I guess, approaches to street art and gallery art that, you know, draws on street art techniques and methods. Yeah. Um, But do you see stencils as your, I guess, primary um, means through which to explore things? It's always been stencils since since day one, pretty much. Yeah. I've always been attracted to that. But it seems like you've been innovating a lot in the ways that you can utilise stencil. Yeah, I've been been pushing the technique. That's yeah. just my personality coming into it. Just yeah. trying to see how far I can go. It's an extreme personality, <laughs> hence going to Syria. But um, I've experimented with sculpture as well and um, freehand aerosol, which is actually really hard. you got yeah. to give credit to those guys. They're so talented. Totally. Yeah. And it's, I mean, if you're actually doing it um, and needing to do it quickly, that's a bit of a problem, whereas stencil art seems slightly yeah, more well, conducive to yeah, throughout history, it's always been this means of getting the message out fast and multiple times. Yeah. Get in, get out, get it done. Yeah. yeah. And do you think, because um, now you've got uh, a great deal of, you've had solo exhibitions and group exhibitions and the list is quite long on your website of the the different um, exhibiting works that you've had on display in galleries. Um, in terms of, I mean, going back to Syria and doing some work on the street with um, kids and others, uh, have you been doing much in Australia outside of galleries as well or are you mainly focusing on um, exhibiting artworks in galleries now? Um, I still do street art, no, nowhere near as much as I'd like to, yeah. but it's just very hard to find time these days. And a lot of the stuff I do on the street, I don't put my name to because it's, it's kind of more fun. And so getting back to the roots of why I started doing this it was never about raising my profile. It was just about having a creative outlet and a social conscience. Mm, because I guess that's the fun for a lot of people um, in Melbourne is to guess whose work that is based on their style. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure it's that, the same everywhere. Um, but Luke, just just finally, in terms of, um, I guess, where you came from, because you're referencing there, you know, why you first started practising stencil art. I mean, what is the driving passion or motivation for you as an artist um, and why you really started and, and what's really stayed the same for you? I guess I really started. I guess it was always in me this need to have a creative outlet. It just took me took me a long time to work out what that was. But I, I don't know, you can't really pinpoint why it is you do it. It's just a very intrinsic need to create. Mm. Yeah. And um, what can people do? Because I know that they can head along to the opening night exhibition uh, gallery space in yeah. at Metro Gallery in Armadale this Thursday. Well, I'm actually, I'm putting on a fundraiser at Bessett Space in Collingwood in at the end of September. Mm-hmm. So I've got about 60 artists involved, 60 street artists from all around the country. And we're going to have a charity art auction to raise money for Syrians. Excellent. And yeah. that's right before your trip back. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, I can't say too much for security no, reasons. Of course. But, um, yeah, hopefully you get a good crowd down to that. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's kind of, 
you know, I'm not religious and I'm not political, so it's kind of just cutting out all of that mm. and just hopefully... No, I can't think of it. <laughs> it's about humanity. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's a humanitarian cause, yeah. humanitarian project. Yeah, and I think um, it's really beautiful to see these works because uh, although it's in a war zone and in the Syrian context, uh, it really does draw out our commonalities and what we share. And these um, are, as you say, people just like us in their everyday situation, which happens to be just a lot more difficult than ours at the moment. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Luke, for coming in to chat about your show and your work. It's Thanks, really Amy. interesting. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. That was Luke Cornish, also known as Elk. He's a stencil artist in Australia based in uh, Western Sydney, and he has a, an exhibition at the moment on called Zero to the Left, and it's at Metro Gallery in Armadale, and you can check that out on the Metro Gallery website and on social media, of course, um, and we'll post up a link to that too if you're interested in heading along and do uh, keep an eye out for that fundraiser in September in Collingwood as well. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. And I'm absolutely delighted to have with me in the studio today, Clive Hamilton, who is Professor of Public Ethics at Charles Sturt University in Canberra. Uh, Thank you so much, Clive, for joining us. Pleasure, Amy. So we're really delighted to have you here because you've written a book called Defiant Earth, The Fate of Humans in the Anthropocene. Now, the Anthropocene is somewhat of a recent development and many people may not have exposure to what the Anthropocene is really referring to. And in your book, uh, you look at the Anthropocene in a range of frameworks and lens. Um, but you start off looking at where this Anthropocene comes from, which is through the Earth System Sciences. So first of all, I'd like to ask you, what is the Anthropocene? And could you, in a broader context, talk about what came before it? Okay, well, I'm sure most people listening will have some familiarity with um the geological time scale. That is the way in which uh, earth scientists have divided up the entire 4.5 billion year history of the earth into various divisions. In fact, they divided into eons, eras, periods, epochs and ages. And what they're saying now in the last few years is really something very profound and astonishing. They are saying, the earth system scientists, that is, They are saying that the human imprint on the global environment has now become so large and active that it rivals some of the great forces of nature in its impact on the functioning of the Earth's system. So when we think about this um, geological time scale going back 4.5 billion years with uh, divisions like the Jurassic and the Cretaceous and so on, what they're saying now is that our imprint has become so huge, so powerful, that we rival the great forces of nature to the degree that we need to declare a new epoch arrived on the Earth to add to the geological time scale. And they've said... This new human-determined Earth is called the Anthropocene, the Age of Humans. And uh, one way of expressing it, uh, James Savitsky, another uh, well-known Earth system scientist, puts it uh, like this. He says, By any unbiased and quantitative measure, humans have affected the surface of the Earth at a magnitude that ice ages have had on our planet 
but over a much shorter time frame. And so you stop and think about this. Okay, it's not just humans changing ecosystems or landscapes um, or destroying a, you know, an environment over there or a forest system. We're now talking about the totality of the earth as a whole, this total dynamic system which consists entirely of these processes operating on scales of tens of thousands, millions of years. And if we think about it in that uh, context, we're now being told by the Earth's leading scientists that we have now shifted the geological evolution of the Earth itself. And it seems to me that this is a fact of such profound importance that we need to stop and think about what it means to be the kind of being on this earth that can have this kind of impact. Indeed. The interesting, I guess, contrast between the Anthropocene and the Holocene, which is what preceded it, is that the Holocene um, was a 10,000-year epoch of mild and constant climate, as you say, that permitted our civilization to flourish. So this is a, a somewhat uh, more neutral period. It was obviously not as much in flux as what we have now done to the Earth and the Earth system. And you say in your book that the Anthropocene seen the term and the concept was required and developed by scientists because there's a major change, very recent change in the middle of the 20th century that signalled a new complete way that the whole earth system operates. Can you share with us the time period that it really did occur, because there has been debate, as you say, about when the Anthropocene really began and also how they came to that conclusion and what it really means. Yes, this is a crucial question. Let's start from this. Human beings, modern human beings, have been on the earth some two or possibly 300,000 years. And for the first, say, 190 out of those 200,000 years, if you look at the evidence of, of the Earth's climate, temperature and CO2 concentrations and so on, you'll see it's a very jagged and chaotic history of dramatic changes and ice ages and warming periods. And as you say, around 10,000 years ago, the Earth went into this kind of really unusual stable period where the temperature settled down and there was a great deal of predictability in the climate system. It was temperate for the most part and it was sufficiently stable and regular that because the rivers uh, flowed in a very regular pattern, human beings could settle down and have irrigated agriculture some seven or 8,000 years ago in the so-called cradle of civilization, the river valleys that tra- drained into the Persian Gulf. And so it was this climatic stability in the Holocene that permitted civilization to flourish And now the climate scientists, well, the Earth system scientists are telling us that humans have flourished so successfully in these remarkably clement and stable conditions that we have changed the way the Earth functions and and probably bounced it out of this period of stability uh, with rapid global warming into a a new period of great uncertainty, instability, uncontrollability. And there has been some... Uh, scientific debate about exactly when this period, this Anthropocene, started. 
And here we just have to take, for someone like me who's not a scientist, we just have to listen to the best advice there is. And that comes out of the so-called Anthropocene Working Group, a group of some 25, 30 mostly scientists established by the International Commission on Stratigraphy. And stratigraphy is the science of rock layers, geologists basically, uh, who have said, okay, here's this idea of the Anthropocene. Let's ask these group of specialists to write a report, assess all the evidence and, and tell us uh, when the Anthropocene uh, is best uh, dated from. And, and that Anthropocene working group have said, weighing up all of the evidence, the, that is the evidence on when the functioning of the Earth system changed as a result of human impact. And we reckon that that began after the end of the Second World War from 1945, 1950 and thereabouts because there's a very distinct signature in the functioning of the Earth system, mainly due to increased greenhouse gas emissions but other factors as well such as species extinction and interruption of the nitrogen, nitrogen cycle and so on. So... From the end of the Second World War, that's when they date the beginning of the Anthropocene. So it's very new. I mean, it's, you know, in geological times, it's an instant. It's like uh, an asteroid strike, really. It's, it's so sudden. And, and yet in that last 60, 70 years, the Earth has undergone this extraordinary change. You know, as Savitsky says, it's the equivalent of an ice age. Uh, when those great ice masses would come creeping down from the north in the northern hemisphere and cover New York with a kilometre of ice. They're saying that the change that we have brought about on the earth is in its scale and intensity on that kind of, um, that kind of equivalence. It's a very, very profound event, a rupture, as I say, over and over again in the book. It's a rupture in the history of the earth and, of course, it's a profound rupture in the history of humankind on the earth. Well, you do talk about the history of how we've seen nature and how nature has been and the forces, the physical forces of nature have been seen to be blind, somewhat uncontrollable and they're moving along at their own pace and dynamic. Whereas now we have another actor involved, which is humans, who have become entangled with the earth and the earth's history. Can you expand upon the entanglement that we now find ourselves in? Because you also talk about humanity as a geological force or power and that we now need to consider its distinctive quality and, as you say, its volitional element, which means it's agentic. Yes. Can you talk more about our agency and our geological power as humans in this context of the Anthropocene? Yes, this is very deep in its implications. In modern times, in the West at least, over the last several hundred years, this idea has emerged, which is kind of entrenched in our thinking about the world, that we have the Earth, the natural world over there, which responds uh, uh, to blind forces of nature. And then we have humankind over here. We have our own history, which responds to human agency, our decision-making, um, our activities which are volitional, that is, as a result of our free will. But what we've seen now is that the history of the earth uh, responding to natural for blind natural forces and the history of humankind converging in the arrival of the Anthropocene or, put another way, the entanglement of the blind 
unconscious forces of nature with the conscious volitional force of human beings as a new he kind of can't say force of nature um, because, it, it, well, are we natural? That's the question. Are we natural or unnatural? Let's say this new unnatural force uh, becoming entangled with the natural forces of, uh, of nature. And so now we have this volitional element entering into the functioning of the earth system. And it means that the earth itself has changed, you know, as we might say, ontologically, that is, the nature of the being, the, the nature of the thing itself, the earth, is different because previously it was composed of and changed in response to these unconscious blind forces. But now we have this conscious force capable of making decisions uh, about how the earth functions. One way of thinking about this is the earth is almost certain to warm by two degrees, Uh, over the next, uh, this century or earlier, probably 2070. Depending on what human beings do over the next two to three decades, it could easily warm by three or four or five degrees. And the difference between an earth warmer by two degrees and five degrees is massive, massive in terms of the way the earth system will function. But the question of whether it will warm by two degrees or five degrees this century is entirely in the hands of us human beings. I mean, we can decide that or that. This has never happened before, of course, in the history of the Earth for 4.5 billion years. There's never been a conscious force that could decide, okay, we'll have this kind of Earth system, not we'll have this kind of Earth system. Now, we're very bad and hopeless, catastrophic actually, at making these decisions and we may continue to make appalling decisions that are going to damage us as well as the rest of other living things appallingly. But the fact is we do have that choice. We can't deny it. And therefore, the nature of the Earth system, its ontological quality, has changed as a result of the arrival of the Anthropocene. So one of the criticisms of the Anthropocene, the concept of or the term of, is that, as you write, it distributes responsibility to everyone and away from those actually answerable for bringing on the new epoch. And those are those in power who have political power, economic power, and that is naturally tied to capitalism, given that it started in a moment of rapid industrialisation at the end of World War II. And so naturally, it's also inherently political. And certainly scientists would not like to think of science as political, but when you add this dimension and and the timing and the context for this situation, it is political. How do we reconcile this responsibility that we all have that is really somewhat benign or it's very hard to actually feel the weight of, the burden and the gravity of as an individual in society? This is an issue that really needs grappling with. There are many kind of critics in the social sciences and humanities who don't like the term Anthropocene because it refers to a generalised anthropos and they say, well, if you're thinking of climate change, of course, it's rich people in rich countries who are most responsible for it and poor people suffer most. That's absolutely right and I've written about that quite a lot in the past. But there are a couple of problems uh, with it or developments of the idea. One is that at, a, at, a, at that level of practicality and, and politics, the responsibility for greenhouse gas emissions, let's say that's the dominant cause of the arrival of the Anthropocene, 
is no longer the responsibility of the kind of rich people living in their mansions in, you know, uh, rich Western cities. And, and I could go on about this for quite some length, but let me, let me just quote you one kind of very pregnant fact, and that is this. The average greenhouse gas emissions from a Chinese person are now higher than the average greenhouse gas emissions from a European. So this complicates the picture enormously. And if Indians had their way, their greenhouse gas emissions would be higher than the average European, and they may well be in 20 years' time. So, you know, it's not a Western phenomenon anymore. It's a global phenomenon. But so that's a kind of pragmatic objection, that the, the objection may have been relevant in the 80s, 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s, but it's less and less relevant now. But, I want, but there's a different level. Putting all that aside, even, you know, it's true about rich people, poor people and responsibility. I think there's something so big and so profound in the arrival of the Anthropocene. If we think about it on these massive timescales that suddenly after 4.5 billion years, the nature of change in the Earth system has undergone this huge transformation as a result of the intervention of a conscious willing being albeit a conscious willing being with profoundly unequal distribution of power and wealth and so on. And I think that when we get to that, we also need to think of it in terms of humankind. You know, there's something about the activities and the commonality of humankind taken together that demands our thinking and that asks us to think this through philosophically, even theologically, there is something about the nature of human beings on this earth that we need to grapple with, with something about the nature of human beings as such. Well, that's true. You do say that this reconfiguration of human agency in the Anthropocene means we actually need to go beyond earth system science, which you begin your book exploring, into philosophy, which we've just briefly referenced, ontology. You reference a couple of key philosophers in terms of referencing freedom and necessity uh, and morality, and you talk about Immanuel Kant, but you also talk about Goethe and, uh, and Marx and Heigl. Could we look at these types of philosophical historical frameworks around morality and freedom that you're referencing in regard to the Anthropocene and humans' agency within it and our moral obligation to be moderating our power and impact and creativity onto the, the earth system? In terms of these concepts that you're referencing within philosophy, which do you believe ends up being the most useful way to frame in a philosophical sense our grappling with our role within the Anthropocene? I went back to those early modern and later modern philosophers to understand how we had got to where we are in terms of our understanding of ourselves and our relationship to the earth. And this uh, division between uh, the, the, the notions of freedom and necessity really preoccupied those early, philosoph early modern philosophers like Immanuel Kant uh, and Hegel and uh, a whole bunch of others. And this was uh, very significant. We don't kind of re remember it now because it seems such a long ago and we've internalised it so much, but there was a very profound event 
on Earth or in Europe, let's say, and it was it was called the Lisbon earthquake, and I've forgotten the date now, sometime in the 16th century, and there was this massive earthquake centred on Lisbon that basically destroyed the city and, and a huge number of people died. And a, and a big debate broke out over the next years between philosophers and theologians because there were those who said it's obscene to say that, the, as the theologians have been telling us, that this mass, uh, massive death, this earthquake, was, was an act of God. This just happened. And humans are not the playthings of the gods or God, but we are independent, autonomous agents who make our own history and sometimes natural events come along and upset our plans. And so the division between freedom and necessity was a very, you know, is really the starting point of all modern philosophy. But what we're seeing now with the Anthropocene is is really a destruction of that idea. I mean, it's completely unexpected. And that is human history and earth history have now converged, have become entangled. As some a group of scientists writing in Nature, I think, put it, they said, the fate of one determines the fate of the other. Now, this, of course, is not a theological question, but, uh, but the emerging of... Uh, the blind natural forces with this new volitional, very powerful force called humankind. And so it means that freedom and necessity are no longer separated in the way we once imagined because what we do will determine we... The free part of the equation will determine what happens in the in the natural world, the uh, necessity part of it, and what happens in the natural world, the necessity part of it now has a profound and increasing impact on the free part of it, that is on human history, on human life, on our decision-making capacity. So what do we do? How do we think about this? I mean, this is a profound philosophical challenge, which actually I think mainstream philosophy won't confront at all you know as always you have to wait for the old philosophers to die off before the younger philosophers come through with the new ideas and prevail and I'm hoping that you know I've kind of cleared a tiny bit of ground a clearing in the forest if you like and some much uh, cleverer younger philosophers will come along and start opening it up to understand what it all means. But I think the arrival of the Anthropocene is not just a, a scientific rupture breakthrough and it's not just a challenge to us as uh, acting moral political beings to do what we must to try to save the earth and ourselves from catastrophe it's also a profound challenge to philosophical thinking which might sound abstract now over there but actually this philosophical thinking which emerged in the enlightenment modern period really imbues how we think about ourselves as creatures you know we think of ourselves as isolated egos existing inside our bodies. Now you think, well, that's what we are, aren't we? But actually this is a very new idea, you know, a few hundred years old, and it's a very Western idea, of course. And now we're seeing a challenge to that with the arrival of the Anthropocene. So what I've done in this book is try to just open up that question, say, wow, I mean, this is big. Let's start to try to sort through what it means. I think it will take years, decades to actually sort it through and to change our understanding of ourselves. But what I'm suggesting is this is just the start. Mm. Well, it's 
really fascinating because it's really cyclical. It's actually humans are acting upon nature and nature is then in turn, as you say, acting back upon humans. And that is somewhat contradictory, as you also say in the book. It's one of the key contradictions is this idea that they're both very powerful and they're both impacting upon each other. You also talk about this idea that humans struggle when a new idea will come along that encapsulates a new dispensation which people's response will be, oh, well, that's not my view of the world, so I'm just going to ignore that and let it all lie there. It's almost a a nice, really easy way of putting things in denial land. Mm. And this is really that point. We've seen it in climate change, people saying, oh, well, that doesn't fit with my worldview, the science that we're getting warmer. Well, it doesn't work for me in my framework, in my perhaps enlightenment framework. So I'm now not going to deal with it. You've opened up the ground to discuss and and confront this. But how do we actually start that dialogue as non-philosophers to talk about our role now and also that as you say if not every human is responsible for bringing about the Anthropocene every human is destined to live in it so we have no choice we're going to live in it and basically most of this damage is irreparable and will take millennia to be fixed if if ever how do we reconcile now something which is not necessarily optimistic it's somewhat threatening and it represents, as you say, a failure of humanity. This is, in a way, the hardest question and I think it's a question that we're going to have to take a long time to answer and that's not because... Well, that's because these things do take a long time. If we think back to the arrival of modernity, say, in the 16th, 17th century and the early philosophers and the 18th century who started to write about this... They represent a profound challenge to the previous European understanding of the nature of reality and the nature of human beings. So they brought a revolution in thinking which took decades to really sink into the, first of all, to the broad intellectual community and then out into wider society and into the way people in everyday life thought about themselves because the conception of self that the average person has today is nothing like the conception of self that the average person in Europe had 400 years ago. And I think we'll undergo another radical transition as the Anthropocene unfolds and we learn to try to grapple with it and grasp it. And one of the... It has all kinds of implications. I mean, for example, we have to abandon all ideas of living in a utopia. There are no utopias anymore. There's only whether the future is, you know, how intolerable the future is going to be in terms of a changing climate and an increasingly defiant earth, an increasingly hostile earth, an earth that's no longer passive and controllable by human beings, but one that is increasingly fighting back, as it were. And so we're going to have to change our understanding of what nature, of what the environment, of what the earth is, and therefore how we relate to it. And this is something that our thinkers will have to do for us, but also uh, the popularisers and ultimately how people in everyday life uh, absorb this profound fact about the change in the nature of the earth and the change in the nature of humans. And, And it will take a long time. This isn't a book where you get to the end and there are 12 steps you can do to, you know, defeat the Anthropocene or even to live in the Anthropocene. What I'm saying is that, of course, we must keep acting. 
and trying to do everything we can, those of us who really understand the threat posed by climate change, for example. But we also need to stop and think and try to come to grips with what the uh, Earth System scientists are telling us and what it means for us. And you're listening to my interview with uh, Clive Hamilton, who is Professor of Public Ethics at Charles Sturt University. And uh, this is the pre-record with myself, Amy Mullins, on Uncommon Sense. He's written a book called Defiant Earth, The Fate of Humans in the Anthropocene. And uh, and Clive um, joined me in Melbourne to talk about this topic. And I now share with you the second part, um, which is uh, now we're in the home stretch, the final part, and really reflecting upon um, the the implications for humanity and uh, and what we really need to start considering. And clearly, uh, there are no answers necessarily, but many many questions. So I uh, hope you enjoy this second part. And. One of the interesting things that you highlight is the idea of humans as an exceptional creature. And I just want to touch on that because I think it adds an extra layer of uh, meaning to this discussion because often we, well, not everyone, but some people would recognise humans as being part of nature and just another living being. But you explore in the book that humans are exceptional in their creativity and they do have a difference, a differential in the sense that they have a conscious choice that they can make. And you say that the era of monstrous anthropocentrism is not that it recognises humans as the exceptional creature, which you say is indisputable, but that it elevates the human to an exalted place of power without responsibility. And that's an area of, you know, responsibility. Not a lot of people <laughs> want to feel that too heavily because it could be quite an existential thing um, to think about how, just how responsible you are as an actor in the world. And that brings, you know, open the whole discussion of freedom and how free we are. But you do say that humans are remarkably free and agentic in this world. And although there are constraints, there is a great level of moral burden, so to speak. In that regard, how do we look at ourselves as being exceptional and yet part of the earth? Yes, this is very much part of the argument of the book. Um, A little bit of background. There are, particularly in the kind of environmentally sympathetic uh, parts of the world, environ, I think, as green activists and so on, there's this kind of emerging view that's emerged over recent decades, really, um, particularly over the last, say, three decades, of human beings as being, you know, deeply integrated into nature, another natural creature. And, and the effect of this is, has really been to take away the power of human beings. Well, if we're just another creature, how come we've got the position where we can change the geological future of the earth? And we have to face up to the fact that humans have become this enormously powerful creature. And therefore, the kind of anti-anthropocentric philosophies and thoughts that are now quite common uh, in some parts of the community really have to confront this new fact that we're not just, you know, destroying this ecosystem and that one, but actually changing the geological uh, trajectory of the earth. And no other creature can do that. No other creature can decide whether the earth warms by two degrees or five degrees uh, this century. We're not, we're we're talking about the Anthropocene. We're not talking about the 
chimpocene or the chucocene, you know, or even the bacteriocene. We're talking about the Anthropocene. And so this fact, this fundamental fact of Earth system science, that human beings are enormously powerful, forces us, I think, to, to confront the responsibility that we have. And now you could say, well, you know, we've always known we've had responsibility for the natural world, but this elevates it to a, a, another level entirely, which is why, I, you know, you used the word a kind of existential question, and I think it is in both senses, both the sense of the survivability of humankind, uh, which plays on the minds of many highly qualified, thoughtful people, but also in the sense of the nature of our existence, an existential question which uh, challenges us to rethink the nature of human existence on the earth. And I argue that the arrival of the Anthropocene and the enormous power that humans have over the geological evolution of the earth imposes on us an enormous burden an enormous responsibility, way beyond any we, uh, we thought we had before. And we have to now really confront this monstrous responsibility and to work out how to deal with it. And I don't really know what the answer to that is. And I think it will take some time for us to think through what that means Yes, and you do set out what this decision is that we need to make. You say that we we can either attempt to exert more control, as some would like, and actually deify humans to say that technology will solve everything and the Anthropocene could be good uh, in the sense that we can even further exert control and influence and power over um, the geological forces of nature, or we could on the very other end of the scale draw back and practice meekness. But that would have, as you say, many social consequences and perhaps is not realistic. So is there a middle ground? Not that I'm asking for that answer, but do you think it's the answer is between those two? Well, first of all, there are two essential facts that come out of Earth system science. One is that humans are enormously powerful. But the other is that the Earth is no longer uh, the passive source of resources and repository for wastes, uh, nor is it the kind of all-loving Mother Earth that we're raping and pillaging. Both of these, the kind of capitalist rapacious system, the kind of thinking about the Earth and the deep green thinking about the Earth as poor Mother Nature has been raped and pillaged, these are both wrong. Nature is no longer this passive creature. Nature is now an angry beast, that we continue to poke and prod and provoke at our peril. And if we think that, well, the problem is we just haven't used our technology enough, that we can now pacify this angry beast, then I think this is a profound mistake because the earth is uncontrollable. Uh, As a totality, the earth is just enormously powerful, enormously complex, enormously unpredictable and uncontrollable. And if we think through geoengineering, for example, we can use a great big technology to regulate it to suit our needs, then this is probably the worst mistake we could possibly make. On the other hand, the kind of deep green view is that we just need to learn to walk lightly on the land, withdraw and so on and so forth. We can't do that anymore it's too late for us to withdraw because we've set the earth on this new path, the Anthropocene, and it's not going to turn back. We have to deal with it somehow. But of course, 
in dealing with it, in taking responsibility for what we've done and managing the... T- you know, it's a bit like a nuclear power plant. You can't just walk away from it and leave it there. You have to manage what you've done for thousands of years. The nuclear waste doesn't just disappear. And it's the same with the Earth system. It's not going to go back. It's not going to disappear. We have to manage it. But we have to manage it with a great deal of humility and respect for the power of the Earth system, which can destroy us. And so we have to work out ways of managing our role on the Earth while respecting the enormous power uh, of the Earth system and its capacity to, to, to do great harm to us. One of the quotes that you have in this book, which is particularly useful for those listening, is one that you say from Terry Eagleton, where he says, optimists are conservatives because their faith in a benign future is rooted in their trust in the essential soundness of the present. I feel that that quite nicely summarised what I've taken away from your book is that we can't be too optimistic in the sense of saying, oh, well, that's something for a future period and, of course, things will work out because we have trusted ourselves in technology and nature isn't this angry beast that we think it is. We think it's this benign, beautiful part of life. It really is something that we need to grapple with and and feel the responsibility, the burden that we have as humans, collective agents. Is that something that you were hoping people would take from it? And were there other things that you you really wanted people to take away from your book? I think, Amy, you've captured it very nicely, is to try to understand the profundity of what's happened, of what we've done, of uh, what we've become, and to think deeply about it and as a kind of, in a way, it's a call not to act uh, in the sense that leaping to action can be a way of avoiding thinking. And what I'm saying is, no, we have to stop and deeply think and reflect. I'm not saying we should stop doing our actions out there to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, more particularly to engage politically, but we also have to stop and think and uh, not to engage in cheap escape routes like unsustainable optimism or imagining technology will save us or, you know, even some who are talking about, you know, building spacecraft to escape a ruined earth, which I think is the greatest moral failing possible. Um, If we can't look after this earth, do we deserve to be given another opportunity to ruin another earth? So, yes, what you say is quite right. And uh, the Terry Eagleton quote is, uh, I think, very germane because it's really a call for us to face up to, confront and reflect on the profundity of what is now happening. Thank you very much, Clive Hamilton, um, for joining us and for making me and I'm sure everyone else think very deeply about this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And that was my interview with Professor Clive Hamilton, who uh, is based at Charles Sturt University in Canberra and has written a book called Defiant Earth, The Fate of Humans in the Anthropocene. And uh, if you missed any part of that interview, I'll be sticking it up on SoundCloud later this afternoon so you can revisit it any time. And it will also, as usual, be featured in our podcast, uh, which is all available, all the links are up on our Triple R page for Uncommon Sense. 
Yes, you are listening to 3RRFM. Um, this is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And uh, as promised, we have with us in the studio, Leslie Harding, who is a curator at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art. Hi, Leslie, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Amy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you in. And um, this exhibition called Call of the Avant-Garde Constructivism and Australian Art is a pretty massive exhibition in terms of the scale, um, but also the geography. Geography uh, of where these artworks are coming from and the inspiration um, that's proliferating throughout the works here. Um, I want to talk a bit about the lead into constructivism uh, because obviously it originated in Russia under particular circumstances where um, the Russian Revolution in 1917 occurred and uh, Lenin is is you know ruling there and we have um, communist ideology proliferating and a socialist utopia. Um, and, and the promise of, um, I guess, uh, equality and um, and the worker and and this kind of revolution and and revilement um, and and move away from bourgeois uh, identities and ways of doing art. But let's just take a step back behind um, or before that that movement really came into its own to what preceded it in Europe, particularly uh, I'm thinking France and and we're looking at things like Cubism and Italy, such as Futurism. These are a couple of movements um, that move into uh, to constructivism as well as suprematism, which is directly preceding it as well. So, first of all, there are some artworks in this exhibition that have um, notes of Futurism and Cubism, in particular, a beautiful um, piece by Alexander Rodchenko um, called Composition from 1918, and he then obviously became one of the most well-known Russian constructivists. Could you share with us some of the influences that Cubism and Futurism had, and also, um, I guess, what elements of that um, were continued and then what were moved away from? Sure. Um, you're right um, in identifying futurism and cubism as precursors to constructivism. And in many ways, um, it was the development of a very abstract language that came out of those movements, particularly cubism and the synthetic cubism of Pablo Picasso, which influenced uh, Vladimir Tatlin in particular. And, and um, it was after seeing some of Picasso's really fantastic um collages, synthetic cubist collages, which used and meshed everyday materials, um, that he began creating what are now well known as his counter-corner reliefs. And these reliefs are, you know, made from rough-hewn materials, found objects and the like, a bit like Picasso was, but sort of taking them into three dimensions. And this is a a sort of a signal and a shift to a very kind of abstract workman-like language. The idea that Kazimir Malevich had in his suprematist movement, which was sort of simultaneous, was that um, by reducing painting to the very basic forms, um, it could be understood by everybody. It was sort of like a new beginning for art. So it was in the lead up in, uh, to the years um, or to the 1917 revolution that this um, push towards abstraction and um, found objects and everyday materials really kind of manifested. And it wasn't really until the early 1920s that constructivism was identified um, as a movement per se. Mm. And it 
also makes me think there of um, a quote from Nikolai Poonin, who uh, was a Russian art scholar around the time of the constructivists. And he spoke about, um, I guess, what you're really saying there, which is about how it's it's an art for everyone. And uh, he wrote that it's not a matter of decoration, but of creation of new artistic objects. Art for the proletariat is not a sacred temple for lazy contemplation, but work, a factory, producing artistic objects for everyone. I mean, it's that it is a revolution in art, is it not? Oh, absolutely. Um, yes, it was, as I said before, taking things down to the very sort of basic, minimal um, vo- uh, visual vocabulary and then developing from there. So the works that you see, I guess in what we would call the experimental phase of constructivism in the years before it was, as I said, um, identified as a movement as such with Alexi Gann writing the the Constructivist um, Manifesto in 1922. Um, and so the lead-up time was really about, you know, um, using sort of mechanical means and people like Rodchenko and Stepanova and um, Popova, for example, um, started drawing with a compass and with rulers and sort of taking away the hand of the artist in the, the works that they were preparing. Um, but at the same time, too, this is um, the lead-up to uh, Vladimir Tatlin um, developing his model um, his for a, a monument that wasn't realized but it was a it was a sculptural piece that I mean it worked it operated on two levels it never as it was never built um, it didn't ever get manifested as the kind of vision that he had but it was a um, if you could imagine a leaning terapeza type of um, construction it had several layers that were rotating at different speeds you know according to what the function of those um, uh, those stories or those levels were and it was a government building and in some ways this kind of held the promise of not only what artists could do in terms of galvanizing people and um, you know riding on the on the coattails of the revolution um, but also this this sort of future view about the machine age the modern world and developing an art language that would sit around that and support it and be part of it you know part of that push so you're right um, it was with Lenin coming into power um, it, there was a, a, um, a we know now not a, a completely <laughs> resolved uh, system of, of um, working with society and politics um, but constructivism went hand in hand and and it sort of suited perfectly the very um, you know radical nature of com- of the communist regime and it gave some artists those who were interested a wonderful opportunity to you know rethink the function of art in society yeah and I mean that uh, monument the third the monument to the third international as it's um, often called there's an image or a photo of it obviously we don't have that anymore but it is pretty ambitious in the architecture that he's he's designed um, um, obviously, it doesn't look necessarily that practical, but really no. <laughs> <laughs> aesthetically quite interesting. Um, and one of the things which I'm picking up on from what you've just said is that um, at one of their earliest meetings in 1921, they brought along a maths expert and an engineer because um, that was what they thought the new art would be based upon. And, and one of the quotes or slogans that they used was, art is a branch of mathematics like all sciences. Um that's just so interesting to to think of art in in such a, a more objective, numerical, measured, scientific way, as opposed to what directly preceded it, which was so subjective and often figurative. Although, of course, we were moving out of that when we got to cub- cubism. 
But I mean, what is this mathematical element? Because it seems to me that as you move throughout the rest of the period and into Australia, which we'll kind of deal with later on, it's not just mathematics, but it kind of then moves into geometry. Yes, it's totally about geometry. And um, it's interesting, I think, when you look back on the history of it and um, the work that we often consider to be constructivist is actually instead geometric art. And um, there's a range of approaches to that. Some artists decided to use maths and the ruler and the compass in order to devise their imagery, uh, although it's, imagery is the wrong word, to construct their pictures. Um, and then others did it by feel and intuition. And yet still, um, when you look at the work um, of, say, you know, someone like Ralph Bolson in Australia, when he took up constructive, uh, constructivist ideas, um, there is a, a sense of, um, you know, the artist's hand and imagination still being at play. So constructivism in its kind of pure form, I guess, um, really only started once uh, artists began thinking about um, their work in terms of the real world and um, engineering, so um, creating sculptures that looked like they like could be models for a bridge or, you know, could be girders or cranes or that kind of thing. And in fact, we've got a fantastic example of one of those by Vladimir Stenberg in the exhibition. Um, this sort of transition, it's sort of like a, a preparatory stage for artists actually engaging in real work in the real world. Yeah, and well, one of those rooms, which is particularly interesting, um, is it brings out the spatial construction element of constructivism, which, you know, is really, it's referenced in the Tatlin um, idea, but it's also then further um, enunciated throughout constructivism. What were some of the key works in spatial construction? And then in that room, how have they been picked up on by other artists since yeah, that, that room we modelled on an exhibition um, from 1921, which was the first working group of constructivists and the Stenbergs and um, Rodchenko were in, in that show. Um, and it was a, a really a, a new way of conceiving of sculpture as not something that would necessarily be made from form, so carved or moulded, but instead um, an open structure that had lots of um, possibilities. So you could see the room through the sculpture um, and it was sort of open-ended, open um, into terms of its interpretation as much as the way that um, it appears visually. So um, we do have a fantastic, that fantastic work by Stenberg in the exhibition. And it's interesting that there are also works in the show that um, relate and refer to um, very consciously um, those original um, 1921 works. So, for example, Peter Cripps, um, once he'd seen the Stenbergs that were purchased by the National Gallery in Canberra, um, developed a whole series over many years that um, referenced them and then used those as a sort of springboard, as a way of um, sculpture interacting as always part of the everyday, so being part of the environment and reflecting the environment back on you. So we've installed a couple of sculptures outside, actually, that have mirrors on them, which Peter um, has developed out of that um, public series of, of sculpture and um, I think it's a really interesting take on some of the potentialities that they might have seen in someone like he might have seen in someone like Stenberg and then extending them and pushing them further. The other thing that we have in that um, room is a beautiful Emily Floyd work which is a whole series of rings um, which references 
I guess, Rodchenko's disc-like, uh, you would call them a mobile, I suppose, although they're very much uh, kind of constructed sculptures. Um, but this idea about space and air and a sense of kinetics or movement um, in the sculpture becomes very important at this time as well. Yeah, and what's particularly interesting in that room is also that there are some works right at the top on the right-hand side and directly in front if I'm looking towards the, the window in that room. And they make these amazing shadows, like casting shadows onto the walls. So um, because of its, uh, I guess, openness and linear forms, as well as this very industrial material, it's it has a whole new kind of effect than regular sculptural you know, works would as they would just sit there, I guess, in a gallery and per- perhaps not really be creating alternate um, pieces through shadow. Yeah, it's interesting. Robert Owen is an artist who's worked with that kind of open form, linear um, construction. It's all mathematically conceived. So um, it's interesting. He came in to install his work, one of which is above one of the doorways in the in the gallery. And it was fascinating to me the way when he was working with the with this wire sculpture, um, the way that it was completely transformed depending on which part sat against the wall and they become almost like models for other things. Um, You can see other structures and forms in them. Um, So he... Sometimes he colours those. We've got some in uh, the Heidi 2 building as well, which rotate very subtly in the air conditioning with a kind yeah. of silver sort of sparkle about them. But the one in the in the special constructions room, as we've devised it, um, is a, a blue st- uh, sculpture, which is very um, idiosyncratic and typical of, of, um, of Robert. <laughs> and... We've kind of just touched on Russian constructivism and I guess the really unique context that that came out of, which is communism and and the utopian view of society. And then um, as, as I've seen you uh, discuss across on the weekend, because we had a, a curator talk, which was fantastic, there were other, I guess, movements from that. Russian constructivism didn't necessarily immediately make its way to Australia because um, it, the information coming out was limited, if anything at all. Um, and it was really through international constructivism um, that we had Australians overseas coming across and bringing back constructivist ideas into their own practice, which you know, become became very abstract and, as we've said, geometric. So could you share with us um, some of the international constructivist works and those then, those Australian works that we see in Heidi too in particular that, um, that really, well, they're stunning, they're beautiful paintings um, and sculptures and I guess the difference between those works and the Russian uh, works? Yes. Um, so by the early 1920s, um, a number of the constructivists, particularly Stepanova and Rodchenko and Popova, um, had moved into away from the autonomous artwork and began conceiving of work that might be done in the factories. So the, the concept of art going into everyday life and, and creating utilitarian objects was really important to them. Um, but there was also, as time wore on, increasing uh, scepticism and even suppression of constructivist ideas, artistic ideas um, by the government and this saw a number of um, a number of practitioners leaving Moscow and um, and travelling to places like Germany and Paris and the like and um, of particular importance to this shift away and and into what we now call international constructivism so constructivism's diaspora outside of Moscow were people like Nam Garbo who was a very important influence on British constructivism 
just constructivism. And also El Lizitsky, we've got some great El Lizitsky works in the show. Um, he went to um, Germany and was a really profound influence on the Bauhaus. So um, little by little, uh, there was another artist, a woman called Alexandra Exter, who went to Paris and taught in Fernand Leger's studio there. So um, as it's sort of, if you think about it like an octopus spreading its tentacles, mm. um, it also evolved as it was moving, uh, as constructivist ideas were moving around the world, particularly, you know, initially in Europe, then to Britain and then as far afield, obviously, as Australia and America. America. So um, what tended to happen, though, was the experimental phase of constructivism sort of petered out, although it was had a sustained um, drive through the Bauhaus and that had its own trickle-on effect. Um, but predominantly the kind of work that came out of Moscow and into Europe um, was more concerned with the autonomous art objects. So it was paintings predominantly or sculpture in um, Garbo's case um, that um, was still true to the kind of work of art as opposed to the utilitarian aspect of constructivism. So that's what um, was disseminated through the world. So by the time constructivism reaches the the eyes and interests of Australian artists in the early 1930s, um, it's very much um, an abstract geometric type of painting and sculpture um, that takes its cue from constructivism, but it sort of evolved into something else. Yeah, well, that was what I was actually going to ask is that difference between geometric abstraction and constructivism perhaps it's just a melding of two two things um look yes and no, elements was, of yeah there was a, a really important group called abstraction creation um which um was sort of i guess it, it brought together a migrating avant-garde of people who were interested in non-figurative artwork so the constructivist part of it was important um and um the, and Garbo and Pevsna, his brother, were um, really important influences in that regard. But there were also people like Mondrian involved. And um, even when you think about someone like Kandinsky, who's another Russian artist who was around and knew the constructivists in, in Moscow, um, his is, uh, has a sort of spiritual inflection, his, his geometric abstraction. So um, it's sort of abstraction creation melded a whole lot of or brought together a whole lot of people interested in a more geometric uh, language of art um, but they all had their nuances and, and differences so when it, by the time as I say Australian artists started seeing this kind of work um, they necessarily picked up on the things that interested them personally rather mm. than um, so much um, the utopian idealistic um, desire to create an art for a modern age although that was part of it. Yeah that's interesting um, because it makes me think of a couple of artists I'd like to draw out now, I guess, that had their own style and their own interests but are picking up on constructivism and are in this exhibition. Um, one is Grace Crowley, who um, is featured in Heidi 2, and there's about four paintings, I think, in that um, building. Just really stunning works. And I, I saw some of her works at the Geelong exhibition for women in abstract art. But what um, interests me about Grace's work is that uh, although it's picking up on some of some of the um, primary colour themes that you see in the in Heidi Three, she's also bringing in other colours and other forms like you know lines that aren't necessarily perfect. They they still look like a human has had um, you know influence in in that space on that canvas. And then also the other artist I was interested in 
is um is Max Dupain who um you know his his work Permont Silos um which is still of an industrial subject and has many of those geometric or hard lines is still um you know it's picking up on constructivism but it's another thing as well it's picking up Australian themes and um, interests. Could you share some some kind of, I guess, information about these two artists, which are obviously very different artists, but you know, particularly interesting because they have their own very unique style within this um, broad exhibition? Yes, Grace Crowley is a really interesting artist. Um, she was um, a teacher at a, a school in George Street in Sydney with Raphael um, for a number of years in the 30s. It was a really important school, even though it was quite small and um, didn't teach a lot of students. Um, it nonetheless brought together a, a, num- a range of artists, um, particularly for their weekend sketch club, who were interested in um, non-objective art uh, or the, the approach from abstraction towards a completely um, abstract language made up of you know geometric forms and um, they were very left-wing at the same time I think they had um, ideal ideals particularly in the depression years about uh, the way that society could be better um, structured and governed and um, uh, so they, they sort of saw themselves as cultural ambassadors in that regard as well. And Crowley and Ralph Bolson, another student at the school who had a day job as a house painter, you know, working class guy. Um, He's also in this Heidi too. He is. um, He actually had the first, very first exhibition of what we call constructive paintings in Australia in 1941. So it was the first exhibition of completely abstract work. And Grace Crowley made paintings in a similar kind of vein as far as we know, although there is a complete blank in her career in terms of her, when you look at the chronology of her paintings between about 1942 and 1947. Um, So there are a number of reasons for that. She, She talks about that. Well, she says that she was caring for her mother, but she also, I think, wanted to give some sort of precedence and credence to um, Ralph Bolson's work at that time. So by the time we get to the work that we've got in the exhibition, um, which are late 1940s, early 1950s, um, she and Bolson had been working in this way and ended up, I think, for about 15 years working purely with a constructivist kind of language. Um, Alongside them, I should just say too, Frank Hinder was really important and his wife Marjol, um, she's a sculptor who uses wire in a really interesting way, so her work's in the spatial constructions room as well um, and she also um, works with kinetics and, and mobiles. Um, but Frank probably made the very first constructivist work in Australia in about 1935, sadly now lost. I can mm. only identify them those works through photographs. But he too, um, in the 1940s, began, um, it was sort of a side, a parallel stream for him. He worked abstractly, but also with figuration. Um, but it was really Bolson and Crowley who, who spearheaded the constructivist movement in Sydney um, in that 1940s period. Max Dupain's a totally different story, yeah, of course. Contrast, yeah. He's a contrast, um, He's a Sydney photographer, of course, really well known. Um, but he was very heavily influenced by the work of um, Alexander Rodchenko, who really transformed the way that um, photography would be um, practiced. Um, he used it in a number of ways, and um, it sort of almost deserves its own session. Mm, the influence well, of Rodchenko on, on, on photography, but <laughs> yeah. um, oh, the, the short version of it is really yeah. that um, he influenced people like um, Laszlo Maholinaj, who was a Bauhaus photographer, and it was very much about. Um, 
looking at the world in a different way. So from oblique angles, from up high or down low, um, cropping things tightly, look, focusing on subject matter that was very much about the modern city and the modern age, um, you know, playing with ideas of double images and, um, you know, um, the push and pull of focus. So there's a whole range of things that we now take for granted in terms of the way photography um, is practised, but at the time it was really um, radical and quite revolutionary. And this trickle-on effect, you know, moved around the world very rapidly. Um, the other thing Rodchenko did too was he, he documented a lot of the people, the constructivist artists at, the, of, at that particular time. So he works in, in two ways, as an artistic photographer, you know, really pushing the boundaries of photography as a medium. And then in, in another way is really important because he captures um, in a very kind of frank and, pl- well, not quite playful way, but a very open and honest way, um, the people in who were working as constructivists with him at that particular time. So he's actually a really important figure, Mm. um, not only in terms of our show, um, but in terms of the way that constructivism moved around the world ultimately. Definitely. And to close out this discussion, constructivism is still um, existent in contemporary art and there's many um, new works, fairly new, within the last five years in this show and um, and there was really um, interesting works by uh, Esther Stewart, um, not only a painting but also a coat, a Valentino coat. So, and it does look, although it's very beautiful, it does look quite utilitarian in the design. I mean, how does constructivism or at least the inspirations or remnants of um, really feature now in contemporary art? The interesting thing about the Russian constructivist movement is that it was um, with the suppression that happened, um, particularly under Stalin, who proclaimed that socialist realism, so um, you know, depicting real life events, was was really going to be the art of the day, and this this. Was this effect? This was transformed. Uh, this transformed art in Russia in the 1930s, and it had a similar kind of trickle-on effect around the world during the Depression. Um, but and as another result of that was the fact that a lot of um, information about the original Russian constructivists were was suppressed, and it wasn't really until the 1960s when a woman called Camilla Gray published a book called The Great Russian Experiment um, in Art, and um, she started, um, you know, pulling out of the vault, so to speak, um, a lot of this work, and from there information kind of proliferated, and we're still finding things out about Russian constructivism today. It's really interesting. So what happened, I guess, too, is that even though international constructivism influenced Australian art right up until the 1960s, by about 1963, when Dick Watkins um, paints this fantastic work that we have in the show uh, called Moscow, which is a cross and a square in relief, um, this is the first kind of burgeoning of Russian constructivist influence on Australian art. And by the 1980s, you've got people like John Nixon, uh, Robert Owen was a really important um, constructivist practitioner um, in terms of Australian art. He had a different experience um, via Britain. Um, but by the 1980s, you've got a number of artists like Melinda Harper, Carrie Polinus, Rose Nolan, who um, do their own research. They dig around and educate themselves, um, find out things that they weren't being taught at art school about constructivism. And seeing it much like an unfinished project began um, you know, digging up these ideas and exploring them further. 
So you have this um, sort of building of momentum again, I guess, um, by the 1980s onwards. So right up until the present time when you there are younger artists like Esther, um, Esther Stewart and um, Justin Andrews, for example, Caleb Shea is another artist. Um, there's a range of them, of younger contemporary artists who still find um, interesting things to say about... Um, what happened back then mm. and also I, I suppose in in lots of ways the idealism of Russian constructivism still appeals so it's not just the aesthetics and the form and the use of a geometric language but it's also um, the idea that art can be a real game changer um, in terms of the current world and um, you know hoping for and aspiring to um, something that's a, a lot more egalitarian. It is, and that's just an amazing um, <laughs> bringing together of all of those themes and influences, Leslie. Thank you for that. Um, if people want to see the exhibition, they have a bit of time to get out to Heidi, which is in Boleyn, um, and I know it runs till the 8th of October, so people can head out and make a whole day of it because there's actually heaps to do at Heidi. There's three um, buildings, three Heidis, um, and, and this takes... It's, it takes place in multiple spaces, so you really do need some time to, to contemplate and see these connections and links between the works. Um, but thank you, Leslie, and also your colleague, Sue Kramer, for curating this show, and congratulations on it. Oh, thanks very much, Amy. And thanks for coming in. Pleasure. <laughs> that was Leslie Harding, one of the curators of the Heidi Museum of Modern Art's new exhibition. It's called Call of the Avant-Garde, Constructivism and Australian Art. It opened last Wednesday day and it runs until the 8th of October you absolutely must get on down um, and also uh, have a sit in the cafe or walk around the grounds and check out the ducks Uh, it's just a, a great day you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon thanks for joining me